Well, if you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, we're beginning in verse 11. We've been working our way through the book of Ephesians, and we've seen God's work from before the foundation of the earth in election. We've seen His work in an individual's life who is dead and brought to life, who is by nature a children of wrath and then given new life. And now we're going to see how through Christ there's a new humanity that comes into existence. Let's look at verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are far off, who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him... We have both access and one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This text speaks of unspeakable reconciliation. Reconciliation that the Gentiles received with the Jews. This text is to the Gentiles, reminding them how they were once separated, but now they are brought near. So why is that a big deal? <laughs> One way to say it is, who cares about reconciliation? Who cares about reconciliation? The answer to that is everyone cares about reconciliation. Try talking to a dying man or woman 
right before their death, rarely are you going to hear them speak regrets of not making enough money, not becoming great in status in this world. What you will hear, if they're honest, if they're willing to be honest with you, if you were to ask them about regrets, I would about bet you that the regrets they speak of are about relationships that were never reconciled. Relationships that were never valued. They weren't prioritized. They were put on the back burner. They were just too difficult. It could be a father who poured his life into his business and failed to build strong relationships with his children. It could be a mother who has been at battle with her mother for years. But it's relationships that matter the most to the human heart. You might say, well, what about the man who said his whole life, I don't care about relationships. That's why I isolated. That's why I was a recluse. That bitter old man right before death is bitter because he cared about relationships. That's why he's bitter. Is because of relationships that were never reconciled. Maybe the man never knew how. Maybe he never knew there was hope. And if you were to give a dying man or woman truth serum, on their deathbed, they're concerned about their relationship with God, who has put eternity in every man and woman's heart. For that soul is on the precipice of swinging out into eternity. Heaven and earth will flee away. And they will meet their creator naked and exposed, the scripture says, to the Holy One of Israel, the one who has eyes of flaming fire, meaning he knows all things. He sees all things. He remembers all things as though it's happening right now. And that relationship between a man and his creator is ultimate. It determines everything. Eternal belonging in fellowship with their creator and in the family of God or eternal torment alone separated from everyone else and from God himself. That's what matters. What is God doing in Christ? 
What is God doing in Christ? You see, growing up in the, just as an evangelical in America, you know, here's what I thought I needed to know was. I want to have a good life. I can't have a good life without Jesus. And I want to go to heaven and I don't want to go to hell. And I can't go to heaven without Jesus. And so what I need is I need Jesus. And once I have Jesus, I guess I just need to live until I die. All the big questions are taken care of. I just need to live my best life now. And I think so often we as Christians, because we've been given such a simplistic idea of what Christ is doing, we wake up in the morning and we don't know what to do. We don't know what our life is about, what our purpose is. And what we just saw last week is we saw how God brings someone who is spiritually dead to life by pure grace. By grace you have been saved. Through faith, that's not your own doing, it's the gift of God. And the last verse we looked at last week says we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. What does that look like? Why did he make me alive? What am I to do now? Well, when we ask the question of what am I going to do, we need to first ask the question, what is God doing? If we are going to go back to the very beginning in the book of Genesis, in verse uh, 23 of Genesis chapter 2, Adam finally has one suitable for him. He finally gets the helper, the gift from God, his wife. And here's what he says. Look at this relationship and all of its beauty. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She, she shall be called woman because she is taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They were both naked and not ashamed. You have a husband rejoicing over his wife. Neither one of them felt an ounce of shame in each other's presence. But then we know what happens in chapter 3 when Adam and Eve eat of the fruit. Look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. This is an incredibly sad picture, this beautiful marriage. Now they run from each other to the bushes. And before they even come out to see each other, they need to sew clothing to cover their shame. Immediately you see the brokenness of the relationship of man and woman. 
And then in verse 8, it says, Then they saw, heard this sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. And you see the brokenness between the relationship between man and God. No longer do they have close fellowship with God in the garden, but now they're hiding from each other, and they're hiding from him because of their sin. The two greatest gifts humanity could have, relationship with one another, relationship with God, is broken because of sin. And then it gets worse. Verse 9, But the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. And this is Adam telling God, kill my wife, don't kill me. Because in chapter 2, he says, if you eat of the tree, you will surely die. And now they've eaten of the tree, and he's called to account, and he knows what the punishment is, and he says, my wife. That's a broken marriage. That's a broken relationship. And then if we were to read on Genesis 15, God tells the serpent, he says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so ever since, there's been a clash. There's a clash between the husband and wife. There's a clash between God's people and Satan's people. There is brokenness in this world. And then we get to see two brothers fight. And one of them killed the other as Cain kills Abel. And we just see the downfall of the world. And then we see the entire world become so corrupt that God floods it and kills everyone. He kills everyone off it except Noah and his family. And then after that, as they begin to want to dwell and, and build up a city and build a tower so high that they can get away from God and his judgments, what does he do? He confuses their language and they're spread across the earth. And humanity is divided. It is not reconciled, it's divided from one another. But then God speaks to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. In verse 1, he said, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation. 
and I'll bless you and make your name great. Listen to this. So that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I'll curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In you, Abraham. Through your family, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. Isaiah 42, 6 says this, I am the Lord, I've called you in righteousness, speaking to Israel, I'll take you by the hand and keep you. I'll give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the Gentiles. A light for those who are outside of Abraham's family. Isaiah 49, 6 says this, it is it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel. I'll make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. Well, by the time we get to Jesus' day, by the time we get to the context of Paul writing this letter to the Ephesians, we know that Israel tragically forgot her vocation. Israel forgot why she was called. Here's what John Stott says. The tragedy is that Israel forgot her vocation, twisted her privilege into favoritism, and ended up our and ended by heartily despising and even detesting the heathen as dogs rather than blessing them. By the time Paul writes this, the greatest human division on the face of the earth is Jew and Gentile. Jews and those who are not Jews, they absolutely hated each other. Absolutely hated each other. One historian says this, the Jew had an immense content or contempt for the Gentile. The Gentiles, um, said the Jews, were created by God to be fuel for the fires of hell. That's their purpose. That's why God created them, to be fuel for the fires of hell. God, they said, loves only Israel of all the nations that he is made. In fact, uh, it was even said by the rabbis, it was not even lawful to render help to a Gentile mother in her hour of sore, sorest need, for that would simply bring another Gentile into the world. This is a hatred beyond what when we, we read this text as Americans, we, I think we can struggle to know what it means because we don't have any idea uh, how much contempt there was between Jew and Gentile. The barrier was so absolute that if a Jewish boy married a Gentile girl or a Jewish girl married a Gentile boy, 
the funeral of that Jewish boy or girl would be carried out immediately. They hated each other. They despised each other. If you want to see what this looked like in one man, look at Jonah. He doesn't want to preach to a Gentile people. Because what we read in Jonah 4, 1 through 2, he, after God forgave them and relented of his wrath, we read that it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. He says, I knew it. That's why I didn't want to go. I hate him and you saved him. The steadfast love and mercy you showed me, you showed my enemies. I hate that. And as I read that, I just wonder, even, even, even as Christians, would you cringe if God saved you plug in your enemy? If God showed mercy to those that you view as heathen, God-hating, rebellious Gentiles who don't know God. John MacArthur says, like Jonah, most Jews did not want to share their gracious, loving God with anyone else. They accepted their divine blessings, but not their divine mission to be a light to the Gentile nations. See, that was the problem, right, with Israel. Good thing Israel was going to be embodied in a man in the person of Jesus Christ that would be a light to the nations. And, and so as we come to this text, let's just remember a little bit of where we've been. Look at Ephesians 1.10. We'll start reading in verse um, 9. 1.9. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. So God has a plan. And within that plan was the election of every believer. Everyone who he chose according to his own mercy. To unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. God's plan is a uniting plan. It's a reconciling plan. You realize that? That's what God is doing in Christ. That's where it's going. It's all going to be reconciled to Christ. And then in verse 10 of chapter 2, 
We're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He just explained how spiritually dead people could come to life, and now he's going to focus on the Gentile, and he's going to show how they're going to be united to the Jews into one new man and how they're united together in Christ. So let's, let's look at this text. Verse 11, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, so why is he having them remember? He's still highlighting his power in creating a new man in Christ Jesus, both in your personal salvation and, and then now this is relationally to Jews. Remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in flesh by hands. I think he, he's digging the, the Jews a little bit there, saying, what you're so proud of, you merely do with your hands. You haven't understood the spiritual point of your circumcision. He, he's pointing us to their hatred of one another, their rejection, how they've been rejected by the Jews. And then he says in verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. They were separated from Christ in that they definitely weren't trusting in him because they weren't even promised him. They didn't while the Jews were waiting for a Messiah, while they were waiting for a Savior, while they were waiting for one to bring victory to Israel, the Gentiles didn't even know to be waiting for a Savior. They're separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Israel is a theocracy where God is their leader and they are a nation and the Gentiles were separated from it. They were strangers to the covenant, covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Unless a Gentile somehow came into contact with a Jew that explained their God, Yahweh, to them, and that there was hope for them in Yahweh, there was going to be that there is no hope for them in this world. There is no hope without Christ. Because without Christ, you're without God. You have no relationship with the one relationship that will get. You'll relate to God in, in one way or another, right? We'll relate to God either in acceptance in his family for all eternity or we'll relate to him in that we'll be objects of his wrath uh, for our rebellion against him. You know, people say separation, hell is just separation from God, well, it's separation from the goodness of God. 
in, in his blessings and in his acceptance. It's the presence of God in his judgment upon you. You don't get to get away from God in hell. That's what, that's what rebels would want. But there is no hope without Christ to be reconciled to him. And then we see in verse 13 the reconciliation with one another, Jew and Gentile. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You who were once far off. Let me say something about the temple and, and explain a little bit uh, about how they felt far off. With the temple in Israel or in Jerusalem uh, is a, a building that is up on a platform that is surrounded by a wall which is... Inside that wall is the court of the priests, where the priests of Israel can be. And just east of that court is the court of the Israelites, where Jewish men can be, common laymen can be. But this is all on the same level of the temple. And then there's another wall, and then there's the uh, court of the women, where the Jewish women could be inside the walls. But then outside those walls is a bunch of steps that go down. And then there's another wall. And then outside that wall is the court of the Gentiles. The Gentiles are always looking from afar, looking at those up there closer to the presence of God. And so when we read here, and on those walls, it basically said, if you trespass, you forfeit your life. If a Gentile is brought through those walls, that Gentile will die. In fact, a mob wanted to kill Paul because a rumor went around that he brought Trophus, a Gentile, into the temple. They're ready to kill him for defiling the temple. So when we read here that, but now in Jesus Christ, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace, who has made us both one. What? Made the Gentiles one with the Jews, we've been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is the, a miracle beyond miracles. This, is, this would have been incredible news to a Gentile that knew the living God is with Israel. And that his spirit and his presence his Shekinah glory dwells in that temple. But he says, now it's been, but now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is blessing to the nations. This is a light to the Gentiles. 
This is their access to relationship with their Jewish neighbors who they once hated. He says, for he himself is our peace. Christ is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in the ordinances. I think what he's saying is, obviously he didn't abolish the, the, the moral law. He's talking about uh, the ceremonial law here, the sacrifices, the dietary laws, the cleanliness rituals, all these separated the Jews and Gentiles. In fact, the Colossian parallel text uh, says, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink, that's dietary, in regard to festival or new moon or Sabbath. These are all a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. He's saying Christ has broke through all these things. All those ceremonial rituals are what kept the Gentiles out. It's why they couldn't go in. They would defile the place. But in Christ, it says, there is peace. In verse 15, abolishing the law and the commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. See, this is what he's doing. He created a, from a spiritually dead man a spiritually alive man in verses 1 through 10. And now you got Jews and Gentiles and he says, no, I'm creating a new man. I'm creating a new man out of them. So making peace. And then we see how that new man, comprised of Jews and Gentiles, are reconciled to God. <laughs> the most important thing is our relationships with one another and our relationship with God. And now that we're reconciled to one another, Look at how together we're reconciled to God. Look at verse 16. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Here's the thing. Sin always separates. Sin is a dividing wall. When Adam and Eve sinned, they were separated from God relationally. When we sin against one another, we put a division between our relationships. And it's only through Christ can your sins be forgiven. Can you be reconciled to God? In John 3.36, we're told that whoever has the Son has life Whoever doesn't have the Son, the wrath of God remains on him. So the question we must all ask is, how do I relate to God? How do I relate to God? Have I been reconciled to God? The only way you can be reconciled to God is through Christ. Why? 
Because he dealt with the thing that divided you. Your sin. Your sin brings about death. He died your death for you. So that your death will be resurrection one day. Though you die, yet shall you live. And so we see his reconciling work. Do you see the uniting? He's uniting the Gentiles and the Jews. And they're united in this new humanity to God in Christ. Verse 17 says, He came and preached peace to those who were far off and to those who were near. Jesus preached peace to the Gentiles. He says the tax collectors and the sinners and the prostitutes are getting into the kingdom of God before the religious leaders of Israel. He had good news for Gentile sinners who were willing to repent, who were willing to trust in him. John the Baptist says, God can raise up children of God. He doesn't need Jewish lineage. He can raise up children of God from the stones. He has no problem making children of God out of Gentiles. And then we read in verse 18, for through him we have access in one spirit to the Father, which we could spend a month on. For through Christ, we have both access and one spirit to the Father. The privileged Christian that we have. Think of this. Think of this. You have access to the living God through, in Christ, through the Spirit to the Father. You can just go to Him. And he's not reluctant to hear you. You're his children. You're adopted into his family. And so we see a new humanity that's created, but now we're going to see the new society that is created in what Christ is doing. In verse 19, he says, So you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fe fellow citizens with the saints. This is kingdom language. You're citizens of God's kingdom and members of the household of God. So Gentiles, not only are you reconciled to the Jews, not only can you come to the Father through the Spirit, but you're also citizens in His kingdom and you're members in His family. You see, he's trying to remind us of his power, God's power in our salvation. He's trying to help us be in awe of what God has done for us in Christ. And I'm just looking at the clock, and I want to get to application here because I think it's important. And so I'm just going to give, we're going to spend more time on verse 20 through 22 next week, but let me just... Uh, go over it quick. Built. So we're members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So this church, these, the, these individuals that come collectively, that are one in Christ, are built up. It's a building illustration on a foundation of the apostles and prophets. I think it's uh, talking about you're built on the foundation of Holy Scripture. 
So this building is built on the truthfulness of God's word found in the scripture. All right, so we'll talk more about that next week. And I'll point out how it's past tense. I don't think there's prophets today in that sense. It's built past tense on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And then he says, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built into a dwelling place for God by his spirit. So the picture is this. The cornerstone of a building is the most important stone. It's the one that sets the, the line. Christ is the one who gives us the word. It's Christ's word. And the apostles speak his words. That's the foundation that's laid. The church is created how? The word of God creates the church. It is the gospel, the word of life, that brings about life, uh, brings about those who are spiritually dead to spiritual life. And so on top of that foundation that's already been laid past tense, you can't change a foundation, you can't move a foundation, it's locked tight to the cornerstone are being built. Those who are connected to Christ are being built together into this building which is called a temple where the Holy Spirit dwells. That's what God's doing. That's what God's doing in your life, Christian. So whether it's family relations, sibling relations, parent to child, marriage, friends, co-workers, bosses, Neighbors, church members, pastors. Paul says, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live it peaceably with all. And for us as Christians, we must be reconciled. You don't have a choice to not be reconciled to fellow Christians. You say, well, why not? Because that's what God's doing. That's why he brought you to new life. That's what he does. He's reconciling one another, us to each other. That's why Matthew 18 is in the Bible. Because we still have sin in our life and we still sin against one another and there needs to be reconciliation, but reconciliation is non-optional for the Christians. Listen to me. You cannot... You cannot be unreconciled to me if I'm your brother. And I can't be unreconciled to you. And because I'm sinful, and because I can offend in ways that are wrong that I need to repent of, if you're unreconciled to me as a pastor, I just want to invite you, let's reconcile. God hasn't given us the choice. This is what God is doing. And if there's anyone in this church, if there's anyone believer that you're unreconciled to do, you don't have a choice. The move is our, always yours. Matthew 18 says, if someone offended you, you got to go to them. 
Matthew 5 says, before you come and pray and make your offering to God and you remember someone has something against you, you need to go to them. So it's always your move. No matter which side of the equation we're on, we don't have a choice but to reconcile with one another. You say, why? It's because that's what Christ is doing. Husbands and wives, you say, it's impossible. We can never be reconciled. This is what Christ does. This is the work he does. It says, when, when we're connected to the cornerstone and to the foundation, which is his word, that can change us so that we can be humbled and relationships can be restored. God is doing this. And here's the second thing. When we fail to take that serious, we rip off the world. And the reason why we rip off the world is God has called us to preach to every creature the good news of Christ. Jesus said they'll know we are Christians by our love. So when there's unreconciled saints, now our voice of this reconciling God is shut down and now we self-destruct. We're, we're, we're a new creation that's created to do good works. And then what, what are we going to read through the rest of Ephesians? We're going to read all about how we're to put off our own old life and put on our new life, which then describes how we're to relate to one another in love and forgiveness. We're to submit to one another. Wives are to submit to their husbands. Children are to obey their parents. Bond slaves are to uh, be in subjection to their masters. All the relationships now, the, how we're to work in this new life is going to be laid out through the rest of Ephesians. And so let us remember that we've been reconciled to God. We have access to him. And if we have access to him and we've been given the scripture, then it's not going to be by your power because you might be sitting there saying, I can't do this. I can't reconcile in my own power. That's right. But when you're connected to the cornerstone, read it. Just look at it quick. Here's your hope. Christ Jesus being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together. How are they joined together? In the cornerstone. Your fuel for reconciling relationships is in Christ reconciling you to God in his self-sacrificial death. When he dies for his enemies and lays down his life for his enemies and, and takes on hell for his enemies. That is our fuel. That is the love that's been poured into our hearts that makes it possible for us to reconcile to one another. And so we're not given the option. We're just not. We have to be reconciled to one another. You might be saying, well, what about Barnabas and Paul? We all want to find some sort of bitterness we can hang on to and feel justified in. Well, it says there was a sharp dispute between them. Some parts of the Bible that we see are uh, God commanding us to do things, telling us to do things. 
other parts of the Bible are descriptive of what happened. Paul and Barnabas were both sinful men who also can sin and have sharp disagreement. And that theirs was about ministry strategy. And so they went a different direction. But I don't think that's in our Bible to make us say, it's okay. It's okay. God's reconciling the whole world to himself. That's what he's doing on the holistic scale. Uh, but it's okay for us to remain un unreconciled. I don't think so. So, I'll commit to do this to you as your pastor. And if there's any way I have put a, uh, some sort of division in our relationship, I want to be reconciled. And I want to be reconciled because God reconciled me to Christ. And I know I'm a sinner. And I know I need this. Next week, we'll look at how we're built together into his temple. It's incredible to think that not only are the Gentiles brought in, not only are they a part of the family, they become part of the temple themselves where the spirit dwells.